Hey guys, this interview was taking place back in March during Social Work Month and Women's History Month. I'm just now releasing it due to some technical difficulties, some editing, and just life in general. Um, it just took some time to get it together. But it's up now, and I hope you all enjoyed this next episode with Miss Maria Henriquez. Welcome to the Health Hookup. It's your host, Aisha Brooks, where we talk about everything life, health, and everything in between. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with Maria Enriquez, a colleague of mine from Norfolk State University. Um, we were going to jump right into it. So, Maria, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's been an eventful morning, but I am doing great. That's good. I'm glad to hear that. So I just want to jump right on in since it is Social Work Month and I know that you are a social worker. Could you just fill everybody in and tell us a little bit more about yourself and what you do? Absolutely. Um, my name, as you already told them, is Maria Enriquez and I am a school social worker with Newport News Public Schools. I have been in education for 16 years. Um, so I've been around for a long time in this field, but I became a school social worker three years ago. Um, before that, I was a family engagement specialist, which is a lot similar to a school social worker, except that there isn't a lot of documenting that needs to be done on that end. So family engagement specialist, the focus is more to connect families with resources outside of the school. Um, and as a school social worker, um, my role is more focused on providing intervention, guiding families to resources, but also following up with them and how those services are working for them and how we can best support students um, in the school setting. Uh, also, as a social worker, we do a lot of assessments and social histories for families who are in the process of possibly receiving special education services. Um, they can be students who are already eligible for services and they are up for reevaluation, and that happens every three years. Or they can be initial students that we do have concerns academically or with behavior and we have chosen to test them to identify if they um, have a special um, education need. So you mentioned assessments in social history. So when you do an assessment, is it like a psych psychosocial assessment? And what makes that different than a social history? What is like a social history? So they, um, in the educational world, you hear a social history or a social cultural. Social culture, it was um, what Newponews used back in the day. They don't use it as much. They call it now as social history. Okay. And so what that looks like, it's um, pretty much an update of how, what the home environment looks like for that child, but also the developmental information, like when mom was pregnant, how was the pregnancy, how was okay. the delivery, so that all those details can be shared at the table. Um, when you think about a student and the impact that um, anything could have academically on them, we, uh, we have to take in consideration when we go to the eligibility table what the environment of that child looks like. Because we have to make sure that we can rule out that the environment is not the cause for the disability. Okay. So um, parents are not always very comfortable answering our questions because, you know, I have to ask very detailed questions about, you know, who do you live with? Uh, how many other people live in their home? And then, you know, you get those parents that get embarrassed when they have a lot of people living in their home or when they live with someone. 
Um, you know, I have to ask questions in regards to, did you smoke, drink, use drugs during the pregnancy? There are times that they chose, choose not to answer those questions. Mm, okay. So we just have to be very respectful of what they are comfortable sharing with us because we don't necessarily need to share that information when we go to the table, but okay. it's good information to have for planning purposes. So do you, when you take the psychosocial assessment and the social history, you just gather um, what you think is like very important information according to that specific child and bring it to the table in terms of determining their eligibility for services and stuff like that? Yes. And they are, um, there are different factors that we ask for when um, we are in the process of evaluation. So we have components that we can request. Okay. Any initial eligibility is going to require a psychosocial um, in it because it's the first time we're testing the student and we want to know and we want to have absolutely everything. Um, but if this is a student, let's say, that we know or have some history that their IQ is very low and we are looking at an intellectual disability, mm-hmm. then rating scales come into play. Play, where we will have to conduct a violent rating scale that tells us what the adaptive scores look like for that child. And they are all based on parents' answers. So they are um, set to be done in an interview form. Um, there are some rating scales like the BASC, which is a behavior assessment mm-hmm. that we can send to the parents and they can complete those on their own on their computer. But the violent is a particular assessment that is very long. Parents don't really like it. I think it's like over 200 questions. Oh my um, So God. it's a lot, it's a lot of questions, but it focuses on the communication, socialization, daily living skills, and motor and fine growth skills of the mm-hmm. student. So when you are placing a student under a category of intellectual disability, you want to make sure that you're placing that student in the least restricted environment. And so what that means is that if the student has good adaptive skills, it doesn't mean that the student needs to be in a self-contained setting. In the self-contained setting, you only have special education students who are considered to be very low. But if that student is capable to hang around others and know them how to get around the school, they don't necessarily need to be in that setting because they don't need that support all the time. Mm. And so we have to take that in consideration because it plays a huge role in how a decision is made for that child. Now, are teacher aides involved in this at all? Because I know... um, I have a couple of people who are teachers aides in different classrooms with certain teachers to help out with certain kids who may have some behavioral issues. So as a school social worker, do you all have um, teachers aides? And I'm not sure if we talked about what specific level of grade that, you know, cater to. I'm, I, I'm supposed to um, cater to K through 12. K through 12, so okay. Th- this year, I am assigned to three buildings, and I have two elementary buildings and a middle school. That could change next year. I could lose the middle, the middle school and be moved to the high school, or I could lose an elementary and have all three levels. Mm-hmm. But because the referral process is way bigger in the elementary level, typically you will always have two elementary schools. Okay. As far as teacher aides, they are a part of the process because when we conduct classroom observations, there are times that we consult with them if we don't get enough information from that observation. But if we do have to do a rating scale with a teacher, which we have violent teacher reports, we have um, BASC teacher reports, those typically go directly to the teachers, not the aides. 
Okay, that makes a lot of sense because I've always wondered about that, especially when it comes to special education, when you're putting that kind of identifier on a child, determining um, if they're intellectually disabled, what goes into that within the school system? Do they just, because when I was growing up, there was just one main class for all of the um, special education kids. So I didn't know that if you're considered I want to say a little more high functioning that you can go, you know, into the regular classroom and not kind of be segregated off from everyone else. So that's kind of good information to know. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's it has it has definitely grown. And and, you know, I, I have a student in my middle school right now who is considered to be ID, but his social skills are amazing. He can mm-hmm. ride the bus by himself. He knows how to get home. He knows how to carry a conversation. But his cognitive abilities are very low. Okay. So he's in middle school, but his cognitive abilities are at a first grade level. Okay. So he is able to participate in art and PE with regular education students. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to the reading and the math, he is in a classroom setting where his support is catered just to what his needs are. Okay. So we obviously are not going to place him in a in a collaborative setting because mm-hmm. we know he can't handle an eighth grade reading class. Mm-hmm. Um, but the things that they are able to do, we will always go to that least restricted environment, which is a collaborative setting. Um, and I don't know if you're part of the collaborative setting. They have a special education teacher. They have an aide and they have the regular education teacher. Oh, that's great. So in the collaborative collaborative setting, you could have 25 students. And so maybe five of those students are under the umbrella of special education. And those five students receive that support from the aide and the teacher. And so um, it's it's nice that they have that extra support because they don't always they can't always follow what that regular education teacher is teaching. Um, another thing that's very important is that um, no one in the classroom knows that that teacher is a special education teacher. Oh, I was just about they just to know add that. that. They just know that that is an additional teacher in the classroom, and that they grow they work on groups. So there are times that teachers are very creative and they mix in the students so that they can work together um, because the confidentiality is of extreme importance and specifically in those middle school years. That's awesome because that's literally just what I was about to ask. Like, okay, since we are in a classroom of 25 students and you have, you know, the teacher's aide, special education teacher and the regular teacher of the classroom, do the other students know that, okay, this is a special education teacher and they're just going to work with these, you know, five students or does it intermingle and interconnect some way so that it's not obvious that these are everyone everyone is considered a teacher regardless of what their position is okay that's great now what would you say in terms of being a school social worker since you juggle elementary school and middle school what is the day in the life like of your actual work schedule from day to day? And what would you say are some of the biggest challenges that you have given that you have, you know, two elementary schools and a middle school? Cause I know that you probably have a lot of students and you deal with a lot of parents and families as well. Well, just to give you uh, uh, an idea of what numbers look like, the middle school that I am assigned to has a total of 1200 students. Um, And the elementary school where I'm housed um, has 460. And the other elementary school that I am assigned to, I believe they have 
a good 500. So that's how many students and families we are supposed to support. And what I can say is that there are times where it's really crazy and there are times that it's very slow. Uh, And so you just have to like organize yourself and make sure that you are keeping up with the deadlines of eligibility. Um, Once a student is referred for special education services, we have 65 days to complete the assessments, the reports, and bring them to the table for eligibility. So that those deadlines, we cannot play with those. That is like our top priority. Um, but the day in a uh, in a school social worker's life, it can be a little crazy. Um, this week has been a little crazy for me. Um, we have students um, that need support, um, whether that is grief therapy or that is just um, behavioral concerns in the classroom. Now that we have the students back that we can do. In the virtual world, we were kind of doing more check-ins as okay. opposed to therapy because of the confidentiality. Mm-hmm. We were not getting a lot of the students to talk. And so then it was a consensus that it was best to not do it that route and just do check-ins with the students. But now that we have students in the class uh, in the classroom, uh, we do pull them for whatever we need to do. Um, yesterday, I was scheduled to do SST meetings and there are student support team meetings where if the teacher has concerns or if the parents request that type of meeting, we have to hold a meeting to discuss the concerns, put interventions in place, and then come back to review if those interventions are working. Um, but we had a student yesterday that came with a humongous bump in his head and you could barely touch his head because he would just jump. <gasps> So that wiped away maybe two of my meetings because the focus was that I interviewed the student and I right. made the appropriate CPS report I hope they were to okay. cater for them. Um, he is doing okay. He's here today. So we are very happy that he's um, doing okay. Um, and so just as I'm set to have meetings, that can change in any moment because I'm always that go-to person. Um, we have a team in each school, and that team is uh, involves a psychologist, a school counselor, school social worker, and our administrators. And when it comes to CPS cases, we also have the nurse. Okay. So in my building, um, where I am housed, um, we have a large Hispanic population. So yesterday, that student was Spanish-speaking, brand new to the country. So I was the only one that oh, could interview wow. So if this would have happened yesterday in a different building from the ones that I'm assigned, then the psychologist that was in that building could, could have taken care of it. Or obviously if it was an English speaking one, mm-hmm. but it was a Spanish one, I would have to travel to that building right. and, you know, conduct this interview. So our days can change like that, I depending see. on the crisis that they the crisis that come up or the needs that the school may have. Um, so it's, it's um, you are never bored. There's always something to do, somebody to help, somebody to uplift, mm-hmm. which is my favorite part of the job. I see it's like a, like a roller coaster, kind of like every day, like you said, it can change. Like you could just stop all of your meetings and drop a dime because you have to take care of this particular student, or you may have to go to one of your, you know, other buildings. So Wow, that's that's a lot. How do you because I already know you're an organized person just from being in class with you I already know that. But how do you <laughs> juggle everything and make sure, you know, you're on top of 
each and every like assignment and student that you're supposed to handle in addition to staying on top of things that are maybe evolving in the school of social work field or social work field in general because I know you said you use you know interventions and stuff like that so how do you keep up with things that are um, improving within school social work as well as handling your multiple tasks I have, we have a school social work meeting, monthly meetings, and we have assessment team meetings every month. Oh, so they're separate. So they assess, yes, the assessment team includes the school social workers and the school psychologists. Okay. So we discuss the other different assessments or what assessment we should use for a particular case or if somebody's stuck and needs help, then we will discuss those there. And so it's really nice to have the group of people because then you can brainstorm and come with the best uh, with the best idea for that particular case. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as school social workers, we do a good job at communicating with each other. Um, and also I am currently working in my for my license for my LCSW. So I get to be in supervision as well. So we get to discuss the different strategies, the different um, theories that we can put in place and what will work best for a particular grade level or what will work best for girls and how we can do things differently. There are also times that we um, set up short meetings where we can discuss um, if something is going very well for one of us in our buildings. Okay. Because there are times that you can create this self-esteem group, but the curriculum, the girls are not really buying into the curriculum. So if that's working for somebody else in a different building, then we come back to the table and we brainstorm so Mm -hmm. that we can try it. And so I think that that is very helpful to have a team that can come together and share their ideas. Uh, Same with resources. When they are outside resources for food, for clothing, we share those resources between us so that if a family is in need, then, you know, we can help them. Last week, I had someone reach out to me about a Spanish-speaking therapist because the parent is interested in doing therapy outside, but it needs to be a Spanish-speaking person. So, So we just reach out to each other, but also those meetings and professional developments really help us. Um, to discuss and, and learn the new uh, work that comes our way. Yeah, because I know that things are always changing. Even in my uh, public health field, things are constantly changing left and right. You have to adapt and, you know, go with the flow. Since you are getting your license, I want to ask, since you do have supervision, what have you learned throughout some of your supervision meetings that you plan on pretty much continue continually to utilize within the work that you do i i have learned so much um not just for my field of education but what other fields and what they do um i actually missed supervision yesterday because i was doing the cps case um but um we do we do it weekly So, you know, it's constant learning experience. And what I like about my supervision group is that we have people from all fields of social work. So you have school social workers, you have um, medical social workers, um, you have social workers that work with the elderly. um, And so we get to hear 
what that world looks like for each of us. And we get to share diagnosis and what we think would be a good diagnosis for a particular case. And once we choose those diagnoses, then what therapy model will be best? And we have to explain why. And so I get to learn a lot about that. Um, Obviously, grieving right now, it's something that a lot of families are dealing with. I on Monday I spoke with a mom that lost three family members since January. Was it due to COVID? Uh, and so that student, yes. And so that particular student is just like tomorrow is not promised. Like I don't, I just want to watch a movie with you. And I mean, what do you say to a fourth grader that it's like, like as a mom, like how what do you tell that kid? Do you tell them no, you have to do school when you know that in this virtual world there's some freedom where they have until midnight to complete that work. And right. so I'm always a huge advocate for the mental health of that child. Um, yes, we want to hold that child accountable for what they have to do, but at the same time, we have to take care of her mental health and, and if she's just so disappointed and, and just doesn't understand how this could happen. I mean, that's a family member since January that they lost. And so it's very hard. And so learning the different strategies that we use, uh, we also get to talk about the different medications. Uh, and that's an area where I really struggle and I have to do better with. Um, but the, some of the social workers in the group have different ways to tie the diagnosis to the okay. medication and they have created flashcards or created a different study plan for it. Mm-hmm. And so like you get to see that, you know, what you're what I'm doing obviously is not working because I can't keep them in my brain. Right. But what that social worker is doing is helping me. Mm-hmm. And so that's another thing that I love that we get to share different ways to study and prepare for that test. I think it's awesome that you're just not sitting, you know, in a group full of school social workers that you get to hear different perspectives from, like you said, medical, elderly, um, maybe if there's even private practice, like all of that. I think that's great because I know just from knowing someone who formally took the test about maybe two years ago, they said that there were just different questions about school social work, medical social work, like working with the elderly, working in um, hospice, working in the community, how to identify resources, medication, all of that. So I think that's awesome that you have such a diverse group to discuss, you know, your cases with, and you guys can bounce ideas and different interventions and therapies to use. I think that's great. That's definitely going to help you, you know, think, learn. I think another um Perk, I guess, on being bilingual in my case is that I get to witness and see how different fields also work when they have to, let's say, interview a family. Mm -hmm. Like yesterday, when the CPS worker came, the CPS worker did not speak Spanish. So I typically know how my report goes into them and my phone call goes to them, but I don't know what happens after. Oh, Yesterday, I got to experience that because the social worker allowed me to interpret for them as I'm a certified interpreter. Mm -hmm. So it was interesting. Like, we're not allowed to take pictures of the injuries, but they do. Really? So, yes. I thought the school would be able to take a take a picture if I mean you all are the ones who identified it first I mean I know you have to call CPS but I thought that y'all would have to take a picture for your own records no because we are mandated reporters the only thing we can do is fill out that report Mm -hmm. call it in 
mail it and fax it to them. Then oh, they take wow. over from there. We are not even a part of the investigation. Really? We do everything on their own. I did so not. Yesterday, okay. yesterday, I got to witness what that interview with the student looked like because I got to interpret for the child. And it was really interesting really? Um, because, you know, they they start... They start like with the, I'm here because this, this, and that was reported. And I'm going to take some pictures of you. So there's like, oh, we're building at first. No. So I was like, oh my God, this poor kid. Oh my God. He's like so afraid that his mom is going to get, and then they take pictures. And then what I found really, we have to measure like how long their bruises are, Mm -hmm. what their cuts are. So we did that before we send the report out, but the worker actually put the ruler against the skin of the student. Like when I did it, I didn't put the ruler against the skin because I don't know how fresh that injury is. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to hurt them. But they, he was very firm with the ruler and taking, um, and taking, you know, the measurements of them. He had several. He had about eight different cuts. So, you know, he had several and, and some of them were very big. Um, but it was just interesting to hear, you know, how that went. Wow. Like you just gave me so much information that I didn't know. Cause I used to work in social services, but mainly on like the benefits side with TANF and Medicaid and SNAP. And I used to have to transfer calls to APS and CPS all the time when I would work in the hotline center. I didn't, I didn't know it was like that. I thought that, you know, since there are social workers who work in CPS and APS, that when they, you know, get a case and they have to go out and do an investigation, that they at least, especially with a child or with anyone, that there's some very straightforward. There's some rapport building. Not just let me just jump straight in. This is why I'm here. And you know, that's strange. That's a little strange. What what I do what I can say that I was impressed with was that they got here before we dismissed the child. And oh, we call great. like and we call like two hours before the child went home. And okay. they still made it on time to see the student before the student left, and they still made it to that home. That means they made it a priority, which is great. Cause I think because it's probably yes. a child and you know, you all documented what you saw to you know, be more specific in terms of like the injury and whatnot. So I'm sure they were like, all right, we got to jump on this. Like right now, we don't want this child to go home and have this happen again or however, how, you know, it happened. So I think that's awesome. I just wish there was, I just personally wish there was more rapport building. Yeah. Well, when I, when the interview finished, I was like, everything's going to be okay. You know, because, you know, the social worker, me, the the empathy, the, I just want to hug this kid right now. So he knows he's going to be okay. But he was just like, do you have, I asked you a lot of questions. Do you have any questions? And then the student was like, no. And then he was like, okay, you can go. And I was like, oh, no. Tell him that it's going to be okay. Yeah. Like, where's your empathy? Like, it's going to be all right. We're going to make sure everything is, gets corrected. We're going to make sure we do what we need to do to make sure you feel better. You know, something. Yeah. And I and I think, and then to to the social worker that came and do the, the, the first part of the investigation, to his credit, our reports were very alarming. So oh. it could be that he was so focused, focused. on what he saw while we wrote and then how he was going to handle mm-hmm. going into the home because he was going to the home without me. 
Okay. Because, and he doesn't speak Spanish. So he could have been overwhelmed mm-hmm. with everything that was thrown at him. And so uh, to his credit, I, I have to say that it was a lot in a short amount of time. Well, I'm just glad you guys jumped on it. Yeah. Boom, boom, boom. Real, real fast. Wow. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's crazy. Like, I, just from talking earlier, you mentioned how crazy it's been. I can see how it's been a crazy week. Because that's pretty a lot. <laughs> it's been a fun. It's been a crazy week. Wow. Yes. Oh. <laughs> on a more positive note because I know you handled that situation beautifully. Um, since you work with so many different students and handle so many different cases, as I mentioned before, and there's challenges, what sort of impact do you want to, you know, leave with the students that you work with and the families that you work with? Since I know, since I know. it can be challenging sometimes. It's definitely challenging because the consistency of how often you can see a student, it's not always there. Um, because you are, I am assigned to three different buildings. And so if I said a day to meet with a student every Wednesday at two o'clock, what happened yesterday, that was just not happening, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I would say that that's the hardest part of the job, um, just being consistent with keeping therapy on a daily basis at the same time. Um, students are very understanding of that because I always tell them from the beginning, you know, this is what we're going to say, but this may not always work because, you know, Miss Maria's schedule is a little crazy. <laughs> and so they laugh at me, but they have that understanding from the beginning. What I love when I work with families is that um, I always start my interviews with sharing with them that I am a part of their team. I am an advocate for them and I'm here to so we can figure out together what works best for their student. I also emphasize that not everyone thinks like me who is a part of the team. And so that if at any time they are uncomfortable that they can always voice that to myself so that I can bring it to the team and we can have that conversation in an environment that is comfortable for families. And so building that rapport with the families and hearing them call me and emailing me or just calling the school and specifically asking for me makes me feel like I make them feel safe. And so I love that they feel comfortable coming to me with issues that there are times that I don't even think that they will share with me, mm-hmm. but because I can build that trust with them. Um, that's the most rewarding part when it comes to families. Now, when it comes to students, um, what I always hope to leave with them is um, that sense of hope, that sense that they can achieve and that they can do better. And that if something is going wrong, there are ways to make it better within ourselves. And if we can't do it alone, that there are people to guide us with that. Mm -hmm. Um, So a quick um, little um, story is one of my fifth graders that was in this building um, two years ago. He's now in middle school. Um, but he would just go get in fights all the time. He would just fight all the time. And he was just an really angry little boy. And so he would get suspended very often. And so we now have a new superintendent, a new producer is really big on mental health. So we were kind of pulled away from meetings so that we can provide support to students and families when needed. And so I got the opportunity to work with him and um, in working with him, I just, you know, simply started with, you know, what is going on? Like what is making you so 
angry? Like, can you share with me? Can you draw it? Can you tell me? And he just looked at me and said, I just miss my dad. And so I then went on to ask, you know, why do you miss him so much? Like, where is he? Do you not get to see him every week like you would like to? And so his father was incarcerated. And so like, as a boy who needs his dad and living in a home with a lot of girls and just one brother, I could understand him needing that father relationship and that just that love and support. And so we kind of talked through different things about what we could do. And we wrote letters so he could mail them. Uh, we did a memory bot. And in that bot, we, um, we wrote positive notes to himself of things that he loved about himself that he could remind himself when he got upset. And then I did the circle, um, the control um, circles with him that worked so much with him. And that, that, that particular activity really had an impact on him. So like he felt like it was the best thing ever that no one could have control of him. And so he would get invited at the bus stop with the bus driver, with the kids, with the cafeteria staff. And so we wrote those things on the control circle about people that we can, we can control what they say. We can control how they look at us, but we also not going to let them control how we behave and how we react. And so um, he made a lot of progress. I'm very proud to say that the suspensions stopped. Um, he started making great, good grades. Um, and just that sense of I, that student just needed to get walked through. He just needed the step by step on how he could better because suspensions were obviously not working. People not talking to him, looking at him, listening to him was not working. So we need to do something different. Um, I have my letter actually on my board that he wrote me. Um, and um, it, while he's in middle school and his teacher sent it to me because um, he's still in our district, just saying to thank, thanking me for giving him hope um, to know that his dad is going to come out one day and that he's going to have the opportunity to do all the things that we have discussed. Um, and so just having that impact in a student's life, you know, uh, you know what happens with students that get suspended all the time. They end up dropping out and then they don't get to do something better for themselves. So I just I just love being able to make an impact and that is going to be lifelong experiences that they can have in thinking about different ways to cope with what life throws at them because it's not, life is not fair. And, and sometimes we need a little help dealing with what life throws at us. Wow. What I'm, you know, actually hearing from you is that the most fulfilling part of actually being a social worker is actually being an advocate for both the child and the parent at times. Um, so it seems like you try to instill some type of hope and also show empathy um, by trying to be the person that's actually in their corner to give them the guidance that they need in order for them to reach their most optimal self. I think it's, it's huge to not allow other people who have experienced, had experiences with the student, play a part in your thought process on how you're going to help that student. Mm -hmm. That is history. What happened last year's history. This is a fresh start. This is a new day. He's new to me. I don't know him. I'm going to get know him from my perspective and from my interactions, not from what the history of that student looks like. And I think that's key in building that report. 
I really appreciate that you take the time to actually get to know the students and you take the time to build that rapport with the student and their family. And you want everyone to be involved in the whole entire process. So just going forward, if anyone wants to get into the field of school social work, what advice would you give them to like get on that right path? If I was not organized, I don't think I could have made it through. (laughs) So definitely doing your research. Stay up to date with what's out there to help those clients that you work with or the students that you work with. Um, Stick to your plan. Stick to the plan. What is your plan? It could be writing out your goal for the end of the semester to writing your goal for when you finish your bachelor's and are you going to pursue higher education and get that master? Uh, But stick to that plan and be consistent Um, because when you kind of like get out away from the plan for a little bit, sometimes it's harder to get back to it than it is to just have a day where you're not focused and then you refocus on the next day. Um, So definitely stick to the plan, be consistent um, and, and stay up with the research and, and do your best. You know, your best doesn't have to be an A class. Um, your best can be just how much you are learning and earning from what is being taught to you. And, and listen to those who have the experience because it goes a long way. Thank you for that information, Maria. It was so valuable because I really didn't know what went on with a school social worker. I didn't know what involved kind of establishing rapport with the student, the family, getting like teachers involved and all of that. So I really appreciate you giving that information because I know a lot of people out there are going to learn from your experiences. Again, thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk with us today. I really appreciate it. And I hope to have you on again soon. Thank you for having me and for thinking of me. Um, I feel honored to be a part of your program. And so thank you. Everyone, let's give a round of applause for Ms. Maria Henriquez today. She gave us great information about what it's like to be a school social worker. This has been the Health Hookup. Thank you all for tuning in, and I look forward to speaking with you on the next episode. Bye.